and welcome to the Essential Property Podcast with your hosts, Paul Samuda and Amanda Woodward. With 45 years of combined experience in the world of property buying, selling, investing and developing, they are here to share with you their knowledge in the Stoke-on-Trent, Newcastle-under-Lyme and Crew property market. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Essential Property Podcast with your hosts Amanda Woodward and Paul Samuda. Today we're on episode 43 and we're going to be covering two important topics which are very relevant at the moment. The first topic is going to be the ban of Section 21 which has been an ongoing discussion for a little while now and the government are talking about bringing that in before the next election. And we're also going to be talking about the pending legislation around short-term lets and the consultation that has taken place with regards to registration and the consultation which is taking place, which may or may not come in with regards to planning classes. So that's what we're touching today. The last two episodes I've been on my own, but I've got Paul Samuda back with me today to talk all things government. We know that he loves his government and political topics, anything economics, politics, Paul's right here at the forefront. So to kick off, let's talk about Section 21. Michael Gove is back in the press today. So Paul, just tell us your thoughts or update the listeners on what the status is as of now. I think the first thing for me to say is that typically of this government, they flip-flop. A few weeks ago, Section 21 was off the table. Banning of Section 21 was off the table. But it's been on, then it's been off, and now it's back on again. Now, I think they're doing this for political reasons. There's a an election looming, and they want to please the voters, in this case, the renters. But notwithstanding that, if it wasn't going to be them, it was going to be the potential new Labour government that comes into power that implements the banning of Section 21. But I think... Overall, as I've said in previous podcasts, and I say it again, I don't think I've seen so many changes in such a short space of time in the property sector for years and years. It's literally every few months. Amanda said we were going to focus on two things. I think there's a third thing. I think there was the government is suggesting a relaxing of requirements for permitted development for extensions, both out and up as well which influences people in the HMO space, which we're in and, and, and you're in as our listeners. So there's so much going on, so much going on. I think the key thing is, will this stick beyond going up to the election and post-election with a new government? Will Labour coming and tear up these new bills and make them tighter and harsher towards the landlord? Because we know that the Labour government are not a fan of landlords nor the Tories for that matter, but I think that's a consideration. But back to the main focus of Section 21, I think it's a there's some good and, good and bad in there. I think the Section 21 with the issues around the court has been a problem. And yes, it's been abused by a minority. Most landlords use it sensibly. What's been suggested within the reform bill and on the back of the recent suggestion of putting it back on the table is that In theory, landlords, in a very fair and equitable way, can give notice to tenants based on breaches, bad behavior, non-payment, which I think is the right thing to do. You have a good tenant, then the landlord should behave responsibly. You have a 
bad tenant, then, you know, a bad tenant should be treated accordingly. Obviously, give a chance to rectify their ills, but if they're a repeat offender, they, they should be asked to leave. And that process should be relatively easy. That's my view. If you speak to people from shelter and people from the council, they may say something different because they have these people come in, knocking at their door saying we're homeless and they're saying we've got this horrible landlord. But what they don't say is that they haven't paid the rent for the last three months and they've been abusive to other renters or to neighbours and things like that. So without me going on a bit of a rant, I think Section 21, it is what it is. Amanda had a little bit more of the detail in terms of what's been proposed. I think for us as landlords, what we'd like is certainty. And whilst there was a sigh of relief that it was off the table in terms of the banning, but I think deep down we knew that it was going to be back on the table when Labour comes into power if the election goes the way the polls are suggesting. So looking at a little bit more of the detail, the Renters Reform Bill has proposed a number of different grounds for possession, some mandatory, some discretionary, which I think some most of them are fair that will help with the abolition of the Section 21. So just to give a little sprinkling of an example, in terms of the mandatory grounds, if a landlord wants to move back into their property or wants to move a family member back into the property, they can, and that's two months' notice. If they want to sell, they can, that's two months' notice. If they are at the end of their mortgage, again, two months' notice. An interesting part is they have put a special clause in there for students because the student investors were worried in terms of, well, how do I actually terminate at the end of the student year? I would usually use a Section 21 notice. So the end of the student accommodation can be a two weeks notice just to end that sort of term and, and, and to bring in new students. And a whole bunch of other ones that aren't stuff around agriculture and places of worship and so on, which is not too relevant to us. So that's some of the mandatory grounds. As landlords, I think we're more interested in the discretionary grounds, which is ending the tenancy because the tenant is not doing what they committed to do when they started the tenancy. So, for example, if a tenant hasn't paid their rent, previously we would have you have to owe two months worth of rent and then you can issue a 14 day Section 8 notice. The proposal now is that if there is any rent arrears, so that can be one month of rent arrears, you can issue the Section 8. Uh, and that has a four week notice period. So it's gone from two weeks to four weeks, but you can, in theory, issue that notice earlier. That's okay. If they are, tenant is persistently in arrears, that's four weeks notice. Breaching the tenancy agreement, two weeks notice. Antisocial behaviour, subject to ticking a few boxes, is immediate. And I think that gives us a little bit of certainty in terms of if we do have a real problem tenant at the property. So if the these are still proposed, so they could change. But if we remove Section 21, we do bring in lots of other grounds that allow us to evict should we need to because the tenant is not doing what they committed at the beginning of the tenancy. We still do have a number of grounds. One more thing before I hand you back to Paul, which I thought was quite interesting, was this one here. If the provider of the accommodation, i.e. the landlord, requires possession from a non-supported accommodation resident to relet that property to a supported accommodation resident, it's four weeks' notice. And I think that's the council or the government having a little bit of their cake and eating it. 
because they're saying if you can actually help us and provide accommodation to vulnerable people and those that require supported accommodation, you can actually ask your existing tenants to leave with four weeks' notice and relet it to somebody through the government. That's definitely having their cake and eating it. I think I like to be a bit of a cynic and play devil's advocate sometimes. And I think that's great on paper. One of the big issues that we've had with Section 21, as every landlord knows that's had to go the distance, is one, you serve notice, nothing happens. It goes to court, says, come back in six months when we've got some space for you. You go back in six months, tenant hasn't paid in that six months or paid sporadically. Maybe he pays a little bit of money a month before the court case. Goes to the court, pleads poverty, pays some money on the day, gets another three-month extension. Eventually, gets to the point where they have to leave. Goes to the council, says, don't leave, wait until the bailiffs arrive. So you've got to pay £1,000. You've got to pay £1,000 to get a bailiff in to stuff to, to out. So that's been the process so far. What's going to change? So we have all these notice periods, two weeks here, four weeks here, eight weeks there. But the criteria is the tenant. Are they going to leave? Are they going to leave? And if they don't leave, what then happens? Do you get, the, 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 the government was talking about creating a special court for property issues, i.e. stuff like this. Is that going to happen before the election? I think not. So what's going to be the outcome? So, so I'm a little bit cynical about changes, especially lead up to an election, because it's all changing, moving the chairs around and giving the impression it's all new, but it's actually, you know, same crap, different packaging. Yeah. So I have to be a little bit cynical on that. The other thing that was suggested, and I can't remember whether that was within the reform bill, but it was talked about continually. I'm, I'm definitely, Angela Rayner is a big fan of this, is 12-month tenancies as a minimum, six months notice for leave as a minimum, and you have to accept pets and you have to accept people on benefits. And that's the other side of things. And one of the, uh, this announced in terms of Section 21 was fairly recent. One of the things which I was listening to fairly recently was if it's difficult to get rid of tenants when the need arises for whatever reason, then landlords will go really belt and braces on the referencing. Yeah, so they'll take your inside measurements, your partner's measurements, your bank account, what you spend your money on. Do you gamble? How much you spend on alcohol? It, it, it'll always be like applying for a mortgage because there's more tenants available than houses or rooms. So the landlord still has the upper hand because they don't want to be left with a tenant that can't pay, won't pay, can't get rid of them. Mm. And until the court system is fixed, which is no mean feat because they're underfunded, then nothing's going to change. Mm -hmm. So on paper, it sounds reasonable in practice and we'll tell. Whatever happens, we live in an environment where property is now very fluid. It's dynamic. Things are changing all the time. So we have to be on our toes and be flexible uh, in terms of adapting. I've always said property is a long-term investment and you get these little ripples along the way. Um, but 10 years from now, our property doubles in value, increases by 50, 60, 70%. Our rent increases and it works itself out. And, and one hopes that it works itself out in the landlord's favor. And, you know, we can sell, have a little pension, 
or pay off our debt and and and, and live on our pension if we're a little bit older, or move on to bigger and better deals. And that's really the prize at the end of the day. All this now is detail, but the bigger prize is for what the property is going to do for you and your family going forward, because most people buy a property with the intention of holding it for a long period of time. And there are two sources of, of benefits to, to landlords, rent and, and capital growth. So yeah, so anything else on, on that? Well, just talking Roger? about the kind of the upside of it, I guess, depending on what, what you read and, and the, the statistics that you find, the UK needs to develop circa half a million homes every year to provide enough accommodation for those migrating to the UK, uh, the population in the UK, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it doesn't matter what paper shuffling the government are doing. If we don't build enough homes, we don't have enough accommodation. And if we don't have enough accommodation and we are in the property business, we're going to generally be okay. We've been approached only last week by a couple of companies, one company that is housing uh, migrants to the UK, seeking asylum, a company that's working with the homeless people. We get inundated with companies contacting us for supported accommodation. So I think the tougher that the government gets in terms of taking the traditional renter, landlords will then look at other options, which takes us nicely onto our next topic, whether it be supported accommodation, the vulnerable sector, or the short-term sector, because those areas allow us to not be under so much pressure when it comes to the traditional renter. So the traditional renter is always going to suffer, even if the government put more pressure on the landlords to deliver for them, because landlords will then just look at alternative options, such as short stay. That's been one of our avenues and some of our landlords have benefited from that. We've managed to intertwine that with our long stairs to, to drive additional income. That's been very helpful. Now they're talking about new legislation, which I think in previous podcasts, we said that was going to come in, be coming down the pipe because that's really the way the system works. It allows you to do a bit of a free-for-all. People complain, say it's affecting this, affecting that. They do a little bit of research, do a consultation. And they're bringing some legislation to to support their fighting. And this is where we are with short stay. So the consultation out at the moment suggests that there will be a register. So if you're in the SA market, you'll have to register with the council. Uh, your house will be designated a holiday let and will have to comply with regulations around that. And, and there's some issues with that. There's some issues with that because you have to think about if you have a mortgage do you want to register your property as a holiday let if you told your lender that it's a buy to let? Now, I know none of our listeners would ever do anything like that, but you know, just in case, I thought I'd mention it. So there's implications with that potentially. Small hotels, B&Bs and guest houses are excluded from that because they have their own planning class. They see one planning class. But the other thing is that they want to create a separate planning class for short lets. So if you want to either convert or do a short let development of some sort. So I'm not too sure of the criteria. Then there's a planning class specifically for that. Now, the problem with short lets has affected in the more touristy type areas or areas where they have a lot of business traffic coming. So the, the big cities, some of the areas on the coast, the Brightons and things like that, where there's, there's, there's two challenges. The challenge is that local people can't rent property at local prices because if you work on the basis that if you want to rent a normal buy to let for 600 pounds a month 
if it's sold as a holiday let's or short stay, in order to be able to get that same property as a renter, you might have to pay as high as 12 or 1500 pounds a month. And that's obviously unaffordable. And that affects the local economy for people living there locally. The second thing is that it, it affects just the whole tone of the area. I think most areas welcome tourists, but you know, the country that the way it is and Brits being they are right, they don't want too many. They want it just right to keep things ticking over, but not too much that they have to be inconvenient. And you know, that's the culture that, 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 that we live in. So I think they've come together and said, let's see how we can police this. Let's see how we can maintain some sort of order. So councils who are generally broke have now been given the authority to oversee this. I assume that they're going to get a little bit of a budget. If they don't have a budget, then good luck to them being able to police that. But as we've said before, the legislation is upon us for short stay. Are we worried? No. We're not worried because we ensure that the properties that we work with are compliant anyway, because we anticipated this. We're very familiar with local legislation as it relates to HMO and SA had to go down in that direction in terms of fire doors and exits and stuff like that. The planning side could be quite interesting. And I said, there's going to be implications in terms of fundraising. If you have a specific planning class, that's going to be quite interesting the way that evolves going forward and i think for anybody out there listening who do an essay that want a little bit of advice on that in terms of what they should do then maybe they should have a chat with us contact us and have a chat and we can probably work out a strategy for them once obviously legislation comes out it's in consultation i think through till about april but that's normally a fait accompli and it means that there's going to be something on the books and they're trying to force this stuff through before the election as potential vote winners for people in those constituencies where holiday lets are affected. And the other thing as well is that people buy houses in parts of the country where they're popular with tourists, have them as second homes, run them as holiday lets for part of the year, elect them as basically standalone businesses, go for business rates instead of local council tax, get small business relief so they don't pay any business rates. So basically they're making money out of the area, but nothing's been reinvested in terms of council tax or business rates. So the locals in those areas are a bit miffed about that. So that's probably another reason why they've lobbied. But I think the main reason, right, is that it crowds out local people being able to rent at a reasonable price because people from outside the area have been buying up the properties and doing them as Airbnbs. So I think watch this space. I don't know whether you have anything to add on that, Amanda. Well, I think in our past experience, legislation has generally worked in our favour once we got over the kind of shock of it when it came to HMOs. So yes, you're having to spend to spec your property. Yes, you're having to license them. Yes, you're having to go on record with the, with the local authorities. But what it does do, it does shake out the shysters, and I think for serviced accommodation it will probably reduce the competition because i think perhaps the rent to renters or the rent to sayers 
people that are, are renting properties and the landlords actually have no idea what they're doing with them. And all of a sudden, the landlord now has to register and says, hold on a minute, I didn't even know that you were renting this out by the room. Properties that don't have fire doors, etc. So when we saw Article 4 in Crew, yes, it stopped new development. But what it did do was reduce competition and increase the rents. So I just wonder what upsides will come because all of our houses, they are up to spec and Whilst you you wonder what is the government's real strategy here, I don't think within our business and those professional operators have a huge issue with it. But I think those that are doing stuff perhaps a little bit behind the scenes may decide it's not profitable anymore for them. But we shall see. Yeah, no, I agree. So with that, I think we should touch on some of the changes for permitted development, yes. which have been mentioned. We're a little bit slim on information there. Again, that's something I was going through consultation. And basically, the government is saying, if we can't build enough houses, let's make it easier for people to make their houses bigger, to accommodate more people, to make it easier to build on little plots of land, to convert existing properties that are maybe going by the wayside, retail as an example, old offices that are no longer efficient. Let's see if we can convert those. Permitted development has been around for a few years now, and one would say successful. Some councils might differ to that opinion. It all depends on quality. But anyway, the government have pushed through and continue to push permitted development. I think on the basis that planning legislation is so antiquated, it needs for someone to drive something through it. So I think more recently, I think in the last podcast we mentioned that you can now convert a house into two flats without planning permission. Obviously, that's got to be viable. That might be in parts of the north, maybe not so viable. But in the in, in, in the Midlands and the south, probably is quite viable. So that was going coming up the pipe. I don't know whether that's actually on the statute now. And then they're increasing the numbers in terms of what you're allowed to do in terms of extensions without required planning. And that's single and story wrap around. They're trying to just make it as easy as possible to do extensions. As soon as you talk about extensions, that starts to go into HMO territory. Yeah. We love an extra room or two. We love an extra room or two. So they're allowing things, as I understand it, or suggesting to allow things. If you want to go up into the loft, if you don't have enough head height, you're able to raise your roof by about 30 centimeters, I understand to give you that extra roof space to make it a livable area so you can get more rooms up in the loft. Uh, they're allowing you to go out further. And if you want to do a wraparound, that was another application. So you could be into two or three different applications just to get. Yeah. So I try to tidy that up and make it very easy and say, okay, fine. If you want to do a wraparound on the back or side, no planning required to send us drawings and get on with it. So that's what's being suggested, which has got to be good news. So what does that mean? It means that if you have existing property, you look at it and say, is it viable for us to extend up or out? Like we did this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If you are looking to purchase a property, you now look at it with the thought that if I wanted to take a, a longer time frame and extend and get more rooms, then I don't have to worry about planning. Now, as I understand it, there is still the six-person limitation for HMO. So if you wanted to extend, 
up and out or and or out, but you wanted to accommodate more than six people, then that still requires planning. The one that's interesting for us, for people who are invested in crew, is how does, our, how does this affect us in crew because of the Article 4 directive? So if a property is in an Article 4 area, will we still be allowed, if this legislation gets pushed through, this bill gets pushed through, will we still be allowed to extend up and or out without requiring planning, i.e. under permitted development? So that'd be interesting. I know in some instances, it's not allowed in conservation areas and Article 4 areas, but the impression that I have, and I stand to be corrected on this, is the government knows that some local authorities use Article 4 just to put a spanner in the works. Mm. So I suspect they're allowing some of this new permitted development to bypass Article 4. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. So the reality is we need, we need more rooms, we need more accommodation, especially in the affordable arena. Crew's a disaster. Yeah. Crew's an absolute disaster. I think it's probably the worst thing that they did for achieving their accommodation goals and housing goals. And I actually think we should write to the head of the counseling crew and say this. I said, we're, we're on the ground. Mm. And we get more inquiries for accommodation and crew that we just can't fill. And... And this is both HMO and normal houses to let. And if someone, if something goes up to let, we get tens and tens of houses. We had one little, I think one bedroom or two bedroom apartment, which was to the side of an existing HMO. We had a ton of inquiries. So those letting agents that specialize in single lets will, will be inundated, but they don't have the property. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what the government tries to do, whether they say, yes, you can extend your house. Yes, you can. Or we're going to clamp down on this with landlords. The reality is, unless there are more properties built, we're still going to have this problem. And we really are just shuffling paper, aren't we, to try and make it, it look like there's action being taken. But the action is quite minimal. I was thinking about how we as HMO investors and how our listeners who who also own H- H- HMOs benefit more with all this change than those with the single family lets because if you imagine that you have a tenant in a hmo who's being antisocial he's peeing everybody off he's or she causing trouble and the police are called and so on and you say right that's it i think they said here immediate eviction generally they will leave because a person in a hmo can go and live back with their parents they can go and sleep at a mate's house. They can go and find another landlord to disrupt. But if you have two adults, two children, they go to the local school, they've lived in the house for a long time, and then they have become problematic, that's then very difficult. So as HMO owners, I think we just have a little bit more transient tenants that will leave anyway at some point. And even when it comes to the permitted development, if you have a two-bedroom terrace in Soconde-Trent, and you have a large yard area and you rent that to a family and you think, right, I can put an extension on the back because I've got this permitted development. What's that really going to do to a two-bed terrace for a family? Not a lot. But for a landlord with a four-bed HMO, if you know that you can go from four-bed to six-bed without going through huge amounts of planning, you've got two additional income sources from those two rooms whereby on a family let, perhaps you might get an extra £50 a month for a utility room. So I think 
HRO landlords benefit a lot more from these things yeah. than your traditional buy-to-let renters. I think you're right. I don't think that was the government's intention. That's just that. No, not at all. A byproduct. I think the thinking is, if I think it through, if you're a family of four and you've now got to trade up to a larger property, if a larger property is not on the market, maybe it might be cheaper if you're an owner of that property to do an extension and create a room for your growing family. And I think that's where it probably helps. So it's actually not helping the housing crisis in terms of number of homes built, but it's giving people other options to expand their existing plot to accommodate their new members of the family. I.e. homeowners. Single let. He's not going to do an extension. No, it's um, not. There's no RX, the ROI is not there, is it? The only reason he's doing an extension is because he wants to turn that single let into an edge mill. Yeah. That's the only reason he, he would do it, which makes a lot of sense in terms of the comparisons. He can go up into the loft or out and he can turn a two bed, two up, two down into a six bed edge mill and probably increases his cash flow threefold. You do the numbers, you check the ROI, and I would say seven or eight out of ten times it's worthwhile doing. I mean, we're definitely going to be looking at all our properties over the coming year, such as this legislation. We'll probably wait until to see what Labour does, see whether they change any of it. But we're probably going to look at all our properties and just see where it's feasible to to, to go up and or out, uh, especially in those areas where we have uh, a low number of rooms in the HMO, like four, and we have land at the back and we can't expand anymore because of article four so cruising off this mm. one we've got some odds and sides and stuff that might fall into that category i'm thinking about Bangor street or something like that so so there's definitely a few options there so i think all in all to your point amanda the changes that come through when you walk them through there might be some rough edges to it but i think all in all long term with a bit of thinking and strategic planning we can turn them to our advantage, which has to be a good thing. Housing is so important. Although people scream and shout, landlords provide one in five homes for people living in this country, soon to be one in four. Right. And I think the government has, and I said this in the previous podcast, I think the government has realized that it really screwed up royally over the last few years with the changes they made to tax with the changes they made to run EPCs and a whole load of mm. stuff that they were threatening to landlords. The landlords decide to sell up. And when you sell up, chances are you don't get that stock back. To for renters, it's bought by a first-time buyer, great tick. But every house that is purchased by a first-time buyer is one less house to rent. Yeah. And that pushes up rent for the existing. And they've realised what they've done so maybe some of this the last few bits and pieces have come out has been siding up being on the side of the landlord or beneficial to the landlord no not beneficial to to tenants but definitely beneficial to landlords so of course that might change when mr keir starmer comes into power i'm talking as if it's a slam dunk i think it more or less is the there were two by-elections the other day and the tories got absolutely crucified Poor Rishi could believe it when he thought he was having his worst nightmare. And that might be just a a sample of what's to come. Yeah. I think one thing you can't stop is you can't stop the train of human behaviour. 
And if people want to travel around the country and stop in an Airbnb, I think Airbnb is, is a dirty word. They, they didn't use it in the consultation. They said online platforms or something like that. But if that's what people want to do, that they, they will do that. And, and and no matter what, how you try to squeeze or enforce, if that's the behaviour, just like if there are migrants coming to the UK and they're being accommodated in certain types of accommodation, which is pushing out local renters, that's just the human behaviour of what's happening at the moment. Take Crew for example. I think there is now one hotel left in Crew for people moving around the country because the the a lady who works for us used to be the general manager at the property directly across from the station in crew during covid that went to the program to get everybody off the streets for covid uh, which was a great program the, ho- the hotel took that on now it has become a migrant hotel i think the name's been coined i won't mention it, the hotel names but there's another two or three down Nantwich road which are also the same so i think we're just left with the ibis Stoke is the same, certain parts of Stoke. Uh, the local authority either just leased the whole hotel and the hotel directly opposite Stoke-on-Trent train station now is predominantly taken over by the council. So there isn't the traditional accommodation, i.e. the hotels and bees, because the government have made them such a great offer to take particular people that the, the government can't house. So people are forced then into the Airbnb types. So whilst they're saying, you know, we're going to clamp down on all this, you can't stop that train of just what's happening in the country at the moment. Uh, maybe the government can make a bit of money out of it. But I think they have to move with what's happening. And that's what we see. Okay. So I think that we've probably covered a fair bit with a bit of politics thrown in. I'm not too sure whether we're fixing immigration policy. but So I think, as usual, we try and keep our listeners informed. I think going forward, we'll communicate with those who rent from us or use us to rent their property on any changes that affect their property in particular. But given the changes in planning, I think there are opportunities there for sure. The impending consultation on service accommodation, I think it's just formalizing things that we knew was going to happen anyway. So I don't think there's too much to worry about there. The register, not sure about that. I think that could be a little bit of a trap if we're not careful, but we may not have a choice but to register any service accommodation units. And Section 21, is it going, is it not going? Sounds like it is going. It's just a matter of where we are with the courts and being able to fully evict someone without having to bring in bailiffs and going to court and things like that. So watch this space. Right. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, please share the podcast with anyone else that you know that would benefit from listening to it. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from our listeners to share with us what you'd like to hear on future episodes. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if so, please hit subscribe and share with those who you think would enjoy it too. To get in touch with Paul and Amanda directly, please visit their website www.essentialpropertyoptions.co.uk for more information. We look forward to sharing with you on the next episode.